0: For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message.
1: Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, we are nearing, believe it or not, the end of this very long narrative about the early church. Um, if you have studied the book of Acts, you'll know that really the book of Acts covers um, basically all of the New Testament as far as historical narrative. It's incredibly helpful for you as you read through the book of Acts for you to trace these things through uh, or read through the New Testament rather for you to trace these things through the book of Acts uh, because it gives some incredibly helpful context. Uh, we last week spent some time at Corinth and this week we're moving to Ephesus where Paul is ministering the gospel once again. Uh, but it gives some great background for the book of Ephesians if you are working your way through the New Testament. But here's what I love about the book of Acts and what we've been seeing over the course of the last uh, couple of uh, months really or few months really. We've seen two primary things, and I I hope that these uh, become apparent to you. And one of those is the resistance to the gospel from the culture. Uh, There is a lot of uh, uprising against the gospel, people who were enemies of the cross. And so we see that in the book of Acts, and it's something that you and I can relate with today. We see all throughout our country and throughout the world, there are people who are still opposing the gospel. And yet the second thing that we see in the book of Acts is the resilience of both the gospel message and the gospel mission as the church is living it out. Uh, That this gospel has no end. And and we keep seeing this phrase repeated over and over. The word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Not exactly in those words, but the same anthem repeated over and over again again. And praise God, it did not end with the book of Acts, but two thousand years later, you and I have heard the gospel because the gospel itself cannot be stopped. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. And so this morning, the same message comes to us. And here again, at the place called Ephesus, there is yet another uprising against the gospel. And yet the gospel remains resilient. So if you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. As we look to Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse one. The Bible says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke (coughs) the name of the Lord Jesus, saying those who had evil spirits or rather saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became note known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that as we come to your word, that we would be, that our eyes and our ears and our hearts would be opened by your spirit to hear the truth that is here. I pray that you would show us Jesus in a way that he is extolled both in word and in the hearts of all of those that are here that are listening online. I pray that Jesus would be lifted up so that we see the reality of what it means to be saved and what God can do in a person's life. Lord, I pray that we would see your power at work here and that it would Remind us of what you've done in our lives with the gospel, how you've changed us completely. And remind us that anyone who is here that is far from God, no matter how far and what they've done, and no matter how broken their lives may be, that Jesus, you can still change them forever through the gospel. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated so last week we left Paul at Corinth. You'll remember that they were there before the proconsul of Achaia, uh, Galio, where Paul was being put on on trial for his preaching. And much like many other times, they could not find any reason to convict him uh, because it was not illegal in that day to preach Christ. Uh, he was just simply proclaiming the gospel, and yet uh, they brought him before trial anyway, much like Jesus was brought before Pilate. You'll remember the story and their similarities. And just like uh, Pilate said, I, I wash my hands of this. It's not my responsibility. I find no reason to try this man. It's your responsibility, Jews. Galileo did the exact same thing. Now, we don't know what ultimately happened from the trial, but at least it would appear that Sosthenes, the, the leader of the, the temp- or the, uh, the, the synagogue at the time, uh, would have been become sympathetic to the gospel, maybe even beginning to believe the gospel and maybe even saved at this point. And so it would appear that having gone to Sosthenes and asking him to do something about it and his refusing that they beat him. And that we and then we hear nothing else of the story because the proconsul turned his head. So then we pick up the story there in verse 18, it says in chapter 18, verse 18, it says that Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So they are going with Paul and somewhere along the way, we'll pick them back up again. They get dropped off. So after leaving, Paul actually ends up going to Ephesus the first time. He spent a short time there in the synagogue. I think probably Priscilla and Aquila stayed there whenever he would ultimately leave. Because verse 8 or verse 21 of chapter 18 says that on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. He's leaving the town of Ephesus. And it says that he set sail from from Ephesus. And he's on his way back to the sending church Antioch. So verse 22 says when he had landed at Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And so that's the end of the second missionary journey of Paul. But then verse 23 sets the stage for chapter 19, because Paul actually begins his third missionary journey. He's leaving Antioch once again and going throughout the churches, encouraging them and making disciples. So, Verse 23 says that after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And then when we get to the end of chapter 18, we begin to get this picture of what's happening at Ephesus. This man of by the name of Apollos, he's an Alexandrian Jew and Priscilla and Aquila, <coughs> something is happening here at Ephesus where God is doing an incredible work where all of this stuff is kind of converging. And what we find in the end of the story of Ephesus, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks, but what we find at the end of the story of Ephesus is that they become this incredible uh, center of Christianity there in uh, the time of, 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 of the, the early church. They become a center point where Christianity is both flourishing and going forth. And Ephesus becomes one of the dominant churches in the day when it comes to the mission of God. So verse 25, this Alexandrian Jew by the name of Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So we know that he had come to faith in Christ. And then beyond that, the Bible tells us that being fervent in spirit, this is verse uh, in verse twenty five, being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. So he knew enough about the gospel to not only believe the gospel and be saved, but ultimately to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples. And he's coming through uh, uh, while before Paul ever makes it back the second time to Ephesus and while he's there at Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside. So Paul's come through. He dropped off Priscilla and Aquila and they pull him aside and they're teaching him some things. So you'll notice in verse twenty seven, uh that, that when he wished to cross to Achaia, or, or, when he, yeah, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Who are those brothers? The ones from Ephesus. And what's happening here is that they're disciples being made in the church, and Paul hasn't even made it back the second time. And so verse 27 says that Apollos wants to go on to Corinth, to Achaia, And we pick it up in chapter 19 where he is already at uh, Corinth and Paul ends up coming through the inland to Ephesus. So all of these things kind of converging. The ground was already prepared for uh, Paul or for Paul to come into Ephesus and he ends up finding disciples there and he's surprised. That's what it makes out to be. Look, verse two, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe he's questioning them? How How did you hear about this Christ? And of course, they say, no, that we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. How did they come to know about this Jesus? All of that wrapped up in this first part of the story in chapter 19. And we don't have a lot of time to spend just unpacking this. This is a whole nother message entirely. But but don't miss this. Paul being. Surprised about what's happening there in Ephesus when he was the one coming and bringing the gospel, not really knowing what was going on. And we have to at least acknowledge right here in this moment that God is in fact always doing a lot of work behind the scenes that Paul was totally unaware of. God was doing so many things behind the scenes that that Paul was totally unaware of. Look at all of the ways this faithful witness, apart from Paul, Apollos, hearing the gospel and believing, Apollos on his own missionary journey, Ephesus there, Aquila and Priscilla making disciples there. And Paul comes back and he begins to share the gospel. And there's already disciples made. And I want you to just hear this for a moment this morning. As you think about where we are as a a nation and what we do every day as a church in order to spread the gospel. From our limited perspective, we can't see totally what God is doing. But we must be sure that he is working in big ways. We can't always see everything that's happening, but God is, in fact, working in big ways. And Ephesus was definitely a place where where God was doing a great work. So there are a couple places we see resistance and resilience in the church at Ephesus. A couple of different places, but verses eight through ten really serve as a Introduction to uh, these two places that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. So look with me at verse 8. It's kind of woven together, this picture of resistance and resilience. It says, He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So Paul is resiliently preaching the gospel after all he's been through. Verse 9 says about the resistance that some that some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. And the way that's being described there is the gospel. So not only are there these stubborn, rebellious ones who are stuck in unbelief, they're also spreading their unbelief and trying to convince others that it's not true. True. So it says that he was that they were speaking evil of the way before the congregation. And when they were doing that, he withdrew from them, as he always did from the Jews. And he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And it would appear that this was a place where the early church there in Ephesus was likely renting so that they had a place to meet. It was as if he left the synagogue and went to the church. And he's proclaiming the gospel there and reasoning with them and teaching them. And it says that that continued for two years. Something is happening here, even among the, amongst the resistance. Paul continues to proclaim the message of Christ and it's still growing so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So this is kind of an intro or summary statement that's going to define the next two texts that we look at. Already, resistance, resilience is a part of the story. And that brings us to the main part of our text this morning, where we see in verse 11, a major resistance against Paul. Well, what happened? It says in verse 11 that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even their handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. And if you understand anything about Ephesus, you'll know that Ephesus was the home of major witchcraft. This was a place where... Uh, they, were, they were looking for all of these tokens and all of these things that were that were a part of the witchcraft. You, you think about anything that you've ever seen about creating a, a witch's brew and throwing in all of these lucky charms and all of these things that that would make the brew more powerful. And, and this was a place that was full of witchcraft. And so whenever these handkerchiefs and these things were going out into the city, they were finding healing, but... They misunderstood not knowing that it completely came from Jesus, at least not yet. And so verse 13, even amongst all of this amazing healing that's happening in verse 13, it says that some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists an exorcist is just simply one who would cast out a demon undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you. By the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And that's hugely important. They didn't say in the name of Jesus. They said in the name of that other guy's God, I want you to come out. <laughs> this, is, this is not a legitimate act. This is a publicity stunt. This is something that they're trying to do in order to gain fame for their own power. And in, and in essence, what's really happening here is these sons of the high priest named Sceva... These sons are promoting the very witchcraft of the town. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest right from the synagogue. False teachers trying to manufacture and falsify some of the same actions that were happening within the church because Jesus and his power was there. Using Jesus as a means in order to validate themselves and their practices. You say, well, where is the resistance then to the this is the resistance of the gospel? Church, any gospel that parades itself, even in Jesus name, that is void of power is a false gospel and it stands against the true gospel. Two gospels cannot coexist. Either Jesus is true or Jesus is a liar And Jesus is true, so every other gospel is a lie. We must stand on the reality that the gospel is true alone. I want you to hear this statement, and I've given it to you for your notes this morning. You cannot manufacture a spiritual experience or receive spiritual benefits without personally knowing Jesus. You can't do it. And and I say that because I, I think in our day and time... We've we've bought into this cultural Christianity where we think if we just have some sort of a spiritual experience and we put Jesus name on it or or we try to receive the benefits of Christianity, like praying that God will protect us or somehow that God would 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 do the things that we want him to do. All we're doing is making God some kind of a genie that is our beck and call. The reality it's a false, it is that it's a false gospel. You cannot manufacture some spiritual experience and receive spiritual benefits if you do not personally know Jesus. It's not possible. So watch what happens. Just to prove it to you, verse 15 says that the evil spirit answered them. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? <laughs> I mean, you know, the demon is not even afraid of these men. And remember that they are following Judaism, most likely they're following these these ones who are proclaiming, proclaiming uh, that Jehovah is God and they've rejected Jesus. So these men, at least in some sense, have an understanding of the Old Testament and there's no fear at all in in these demons of them says. But who are you? Verse 16 says and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them. And overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The manufactured gospel did not prevail because they did not have Jesus. The true gospel was not a gospel of new birth. And it had no power to scare hell at all. And that only shows the weakness of the false gospel. Their scheme did not work. They were experiencing the power of a demon. And while they were experiencing the power of a demon, now the town actually experienced the power of God. Verse 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Ephesus was a town of deep spiritual darkness, witchcraft everywhere how many of you have ever been to the city of New Orleans, Louisiana? Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever been out after dark? It's a frightening place. You'll see on the streets, tarot card readers set up at card tables with candles. You'll hear noises that will scare you to death. It is a dark place. It's a place that's filled with the the uh, practice of voodoo. And it's a... Uh, version of witchcraft and it's a frightening place it's a dark place it's not been the same since since Katrina but much of the same things that were there before have begun to creep back in and in many ways it's the same town it's always been this is similar to Ephesus our town you could consider a number of things things like Drugs, the drug culture in our town is a dark kind of place. It's wrecking families, it's wrecking businesses, it's wrecking homes. The drug culture in uh, our our town and our surrounding towns is wreaking havoc. It's a dark place. You could use the broken homes. You could use the overabundance of children who don't have homes and families to go to. Homelessness in our Children. You could even go to something like small town gossip and see the same level of darkness in our town. Our country, much the same. Abortion running rampant. We talk about all of the deaths from COVID, but the deaths from abortion in our country year after year so totally blow out the numbers for COVID and everything else. Sexual immorality, rampant. Who ever thought that we'd be in a day where we were questioning the gender of a person? Sexual immorality, injustice. None of our courts are making decisions that are just. They're making decisions that are legal and that are expedient to their own cause. Rebellion, idolatry. We could make a list, couldn't we? A long, long list. America in reality and in many ways, even our own town. Has its own darkness. What happens in Ephesus whenever the darkness fails? (laughs) They come to faith in Christ, they begin to sell their books. They have no value to burn their books for a value that doesn't even matter to them anymore. Fifty thousand pieces of silver and they just simply burn them. Why? Because they have found Jesus to be a greater treasure than anything they could ever know in this world. Why? Because Jesus has radically changed their life. They leave witchcraft, they burn the books, and they follow Jesus. And this is a radical change. It's the same kind of change that we might see in a city like New Orleans, where people who practice voodoo get rid of their tarot cards and begin to proclaim Jesus to all of the people that they once led astray. It's the kind of Jesus that makes a change in a drug addict's life. It's this radical change in a person's life when they come to faith in Jesus. And this is not something small, as we might call it. This isn't a person who was raised in church all their life. These are people that are deep in the darkness of sin. And it's not only witchcraft that could be changed, but abandoned children. That story can be changed. Gossip, that story can be changed. Drugs, that story can be changed. Abandoned children that, that don't have any home, that need foster homes. That story can be changed. Why? Because listen very closely. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to radically change anyone's life. Anyone's life. And this is an amazing story to me. Because these are the kind of people that we would say they would never change. We ought to stay away from those people. And yet, this is the very story in which their lives change forever. What Jesus does when He saves someone is He brings them from darkness to light. He brings them from life to death. And their lives are never the same. Isn't this what God said He was going to do? Isaiah... He tells us to remember not the former things, nor consider, this is Isaiah 43, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. He says, now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? He says, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The gospel was coming and it was going to make a way. God was going to make a way in the most broken and the darkest of circumstances because God was going to radically change people's lives to the gospel of Christ. And Ezekiel says that he was going to give them a new heart, taking out this heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh, putting his spirit within them. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. John 3 says that it it is what Jesus calls being born again. Entirely and utterly changed. Jesus died, listen church, to change your life. And the word of the Lord to us this morning is that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter how far gone our lives may seem, no matter how distant we are from God, no matter how wicked, no matter how broken, no matter how many mistakes, no matter how much regret, shame and guilt that in the midst of all of that, Jesus can change your life. Jesus can change your life. So what I want to do this morning in the time that we have left briefly is look at verses 17 through 20. Because what we have in verses 17 through 20 are some marks of a changed life. Five of them, to be exact. Five different marks that we see in these ones who sold all of their books, and, or rather burned all of their books, for no money, and decided to follow Jesus. What are those marks of a changed life? Well, we'll just take them in the order that they come. So verse 17, when Jesus changes a life, others take notice. When Jesus changes a life, others take notice. Look at verse 17. It says, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. All the residents, everyone there, both Jews and Greeks. What is it that became known? Well, the event with the sons of Sceva. So you might be saying, well, that's what they heard. That's what they saw happening. Yeah, it became a pretty public event because these guys just ran around naked. And, and this is just this was nuts. I mean, this was a, a townwide event. And I would say, yes, that is true. Jews and Greeks heard about it. That's the scene. But what does it lead to? It leads to the witches of Ephesus burning their books. Verse 19, it says a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them. Watch what it says in the sight of all. Now, I take that to mean all the residents of Ephesus, the same all that that Luke has already used. Everyone in the town saw that evil failed The gospel won and that people got saved and that their lives were changed. That's an amazing picture. Because what it says to us is when Jesus changes someone's life, when someone makes a a personal decision to follow Jesus, that, that that change in their life is evident to the people around them. It's amazing to me how many people claim to have had an encounter or experience with Jesus, maybe at church, walked an aisle, whatever the case was that they described, and yet their lives don't look any different than anyone else in the world. This is not a changed life. This is not someone who's been born again. Whenever someone has been born again, people take notice. Maybe to just say, say it in this way. Coming to Christ is a personal decision. Amen. You must make a personal decision, but it is never a private decision. It is always a public decision. You don't come to faith in Christ and just become a closet Christian and nobody knows about your faith. That doesn't happen. It's not the way it works. It's not New Testament faith. It's not biblical faith. We become Christians and the world sees a difference. You cannot live in the world and and stand for Jesus and make no stand at all. One person said, you must stand for something or you will definitely fall. And we will have to stand for Jesus. We must stand for Him. People will take notice. In fact, not only will it happen by nature of being a Christian, being born again, we're actually commanded to do it. To give a public testimony. How? How? Well, in the very first part of this chapter, they're baptized. Baptism is not just simply an act of obedience. It is a public profession of faith. It is to confess Christ before men. When you're baptized, you say it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because he's the one who died for me. He died, was buried, and rose again. And today I'm dying to myself and being born again. I'm living unto Christ. It's a public testimony of Christ. We're commanded to be baptized and we're commanded further to make disciples. How can you make disciples without ever telling anybody about Jesus? You see, when you come to faith in Christ, whenever Jesus changes a life, others take notice. So let me ask you. Do people around you notice that your life is about Jesus now? Do they notice? Secondly, when Jesus changes a life, Jesus is treasured. When Jesus changes a life, Jesus is treasured. So again, go back to verse 17 with me. It says that this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And it says that the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Love that word. To to lift up, to, to, to reverence, to honor, to give honor that is due Jesus. And it's more than just exalting, it's extolling. The human heart is engaging in this, not just the life. It's an emotional response to who Christ is. We know that because when you get to verse 19, all of these books are no longer important to them. And this is not a small sum of money. 50,000 pieces of silver. These were incredibly valuable, not only to them, but culturally valuable. And so what happens? They sell it. Why? Because they had found a greater treasure than their witchcraft. Oh, I love that. They have found Jesus to be a treasure. This is missing in so much of American Christianity because somehow we think that Christianity is just some kind of a cultural expression or a club to be in or even listen a list of rules to follow. But Christianity is a person to be treasured. Jesus is all in all. Do you remember the story that that Jesus told about the man who found the treasure buried in the field? Do you remember the story? And what did he do? He sold everything that he had to go and buy the field because why? He knew the value of the treasure in the field. And the same thing is true of us when we come to faith in Christ. Nothing else is important anymore in the same way that it once was. And everything that we value is now valued through a gospel lens. We see our lives differently. And so in essence, it is us no longer who lives, but Christ who lives in us. Two distinct things here to pick up on. One is that they no longer treasured their former lives. You can't come to Jesus and keep your old life too. They got rid of it. They walked away from it. The Bible calls it repentance. And secondly, they supremely treasured Christ. It was not just simply some small amount. It wasn't, it wasn't just making Christ first. It was making Christ everything. Jesus totally changed their life. So again, the question, do you really treasure Jesus? I mean, with everything that you are, is he, is he your joy? Is he your reward? Is, is he your treasure? Third, when Jesus changes a life, sin is confessed. Verse 18 says, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Confessing and divulging their practices to divulge is to reveal when you divulge something. You make something known that was not previously known. You, you bring it out of the darkness into the light. They divulged their practices and they confessed them it's to make confession with a mouth. It is to agree about that thing with someone else about that thing. So in essence, it is to agree with God about their sin. And salvation to be saved begins with Confessing our sin before the Lord. Agreeing with God about our sin. And do you know how God feels about our sin? He hates it. It's an abomination to Him. To confess our sin is to say, God, I agree with you about my witchcraft, about my idolatry, about my rebellion, that it is, it is despicable. It's an abomination before you. And I, I don't want it anymore. God, I confess, That's who I am. That's who I am before you begins with confession is to agree with God about what he has said in his word. And so they confess their witchcraft. First, John one says that this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God does not have sin in him. He's not unholy. He's not unrighteousness, unrighteous. He never makes a mistake. He has no need. No darkness at all. So if we say we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The reality is, if we want to come to Jesus and not confess our sin, we've missed the point that Jesus has come to change our life. Jesus died to change us. Verse 7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Praise God for that. Amen? Jesus cleanses us, but... Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, if we don't confess, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must confess our sin. Church, a gospel that reduces the severity of sin is a gospel that does not have any power to save at all because it has a low regard for the holiness of God and the glory of his grace. Sin must be confessed. It cannot remain hidden. Now, I think that there's principle in the reality that confession must be as public as the sin itself. I think there's biblical precedent there. But the reality is we must confess our sin to God. So have you confessed your sin? And Christian, do you regularly confess your sin before the Lord? Bring it to light. Number four, quickly. When Jesus changes a life, repentance is practiced. I've already somewhat alluded to this, but look at verse 19. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. To agree with God about our sin, to just simply be sad or brokenhearted over our own sinfulness and come to God in tears and say, I'm sorry, is not biblical repentance. It's remorse. And we, we should grieve our sin. Amen, church? We, we should absolutely grieve our sin. But it is not enough to grieve it. We must turn from it. You see, biblical repentance actually produces a change in life. Not just a change of heart and mind. Biblical repentance is to change the mind. And so, yes, it's not just outward form, but it will produce outward form. And so repentance is practiced when Jesus does actually change a life. Now, there's a world of difference between a moment of weakness and a practice. It's not to say that Christians are perfect to be radically changed is not to be perfect. (laughs) Praise God, there's coming a day for that. Amen. It's coming. When we no longer wrestle against sin, we're not there yet. Here's the reality. At the same time, I don't want to lessen that moment of weakness either, because one moment of weakness can very quickly become a practice. And the one who's been changed makes a practice of repentance. There's one final mark here when Jesus changes a life. And that is the gospel is multiplied. In all that happened, verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I think the news spread, but on the authority of what we see in Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila at the beginning, having already been preaching the gospel, it wasn't Paul only who was spreading the gospel. I fully believe with all of my heart that these once witches, now followers of Jesus, begin to proclaim the word, the gospel. And I think people were getting saved. In fact, it became such a great threat, we're going to see another act of resistance next week. A riot. You see, whenever Jesus changes a life, we can't help but tell somebody. We can't help but tell somebody. I've had conversations with many of you, and you said, I, I just, Pastor, I just want to tell you about somebody I, I told about Jesus today. My prayer for you is that that would be the story of your life every day. Praying for people to tell about Jesus and proclaiming the gospel because it is and has the power to radically change anyone's life. How many of you can say, Jesus changed my life, Pastor. I'm not the same person I once was. My life's different. How many of you can say that there was a day that Jesus came into my life and I've never been the same since? You may not know the time and the date. But if you're a Christian, you know when Jesus changed your life. And I would say to you this morning, never let the power of the gospel to change a sinner's heart grow distant in your memory. Or cold in your heart. Remember what Jesus has done for you. I I once was lost, but now I'm found. I've been set free by the power of the gospel. Never forget what Jesus has done for you, because the day it grows cold and the day it grows distant is the day you grow cold and distant from the Lord. You see, our fellowship as we remember that it is by grace alone, through faith alone and Jesus alone to change the most wretched of sinners and set me free is the day the gospel is fanned into flame in our hearts. And my prayer for you is that it would be fanned the flame like never before for you. Some of you, though, right now, having heard the word of the Lord, have never been born again. You've never been changed. And on the authority of God's Word, you need to hear this morning that the Gospel can change your life. Jesus can set you free. You say, I, yeah, but Pastor, you don't know where I've been, what I've done. I'm not so sure about this detail yet or that detail. I haven't figured this part of it out. I don't understand it all yet, Pastor. I, I want you to hear this this morning. Giving what you know of you to what you know of Jesus this morning in total surrender. Repenting of your sin and believing upon Jesus who died for you and rose again three days later. You will be saved today. Just simple faith in Christ. The Bible says that Jesus will cause you to be born again. You'll begin to understand the things of God and much more to love the things of God. And He'll change you into the person that He created you to be serving Him, glorifying Him, honoring Him with your life, if you'd simply surrender to Him in faith today. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to call you to a time of response this morning where our altar will be open. These steps down front if you want to come this morning and spend some time in prayer. Maybe you've got a need in your life. You want somebody to come and pray with you. Grab them by the arm. Maybe you want me to pray with you. I'll, I'll do that this morning. You come this morning and pray over that need in your life. Maybe there's other decisions that need to be made in this room. Maybe, maybe this morning you need to trust in Jesus. You've heard of the word of the Lord this morning and you want to believe the gospel. You come in just a few moments. When we stand together, when we sing, this music will be playing. It will be the time to respond to the Lord. And you step out of that place where you'll be standing. Whatever decision that is on your heart. And today you respond to the Lord. Not to me. This isn't about me. It's not about the people in this room. It's about you and the Lord this morning. That decision being public, but it must be personal. It must be between you and the Lord this morning. You must decide to follow Christ. Will you do that today? With every head bowed, every eye closed, would you stand with me all across the room? I'm going to pray. Our time of invitation will begin. Lord, have your way in our hearts this morning. We ask for repentance and faith. We ask, God, that you would be glorified in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephanie begins to play, you come this
0: morning. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram By searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.